And so I want to give a little bit of kind of a, kind of a lead in before we dive back in. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. That's where we're going to be uh, reading out of today. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible um, or you don't own a Bible with words big enough that you can actually read, please feel free to take that one. That's why we get them with the large print. Because Pastor Jeff's eyesight is going, and he figures if his is, everybody else's is. So, you know. I, I'm quickly becoming there. Like, I hit 40 a couple of years ago, and my eyes went, oh, yeah, guess what? Glasses are in your future. So, fun stuff. Um, we are working through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story of the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem uh, as as Jesus basically commissioned his disciples, his followers, to continue the ministry that he had begun. And the story that we're going to look at today is a really, really central one. Last week I mentioned that in, in Hebrew and in Greek, there's really no ability to, um, they don't use punctuation in Greek, and so there's no like exclamation mark when you really want to make a point. There's no italics that you can use in order to emphasize your point. So in both Hebrew and Greek, the way that you make sure that somebody's getting your point is you repeat it. Hence, the first song we sang this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The point there is we want you to know that God is so utterly other than or set apart from the rest of creation that we're going to repeat it three times. Well, interestingly enough, the, the story that we're going to continue reading today uh, is repeated three times in the book of Acts. And it's a pretty lengthy story. So the fact that Luke, the author of Acts, tells the same story pretty much three times is, is insinuating that this is of central importance to, this, to the point that he's trying to make throughout the book of Acts. Does that make sense? So he's going to repeat it. In fact, we're going to read two of the three times it's repeated today, this morning. But let's back up to the beginning of Acts. The very beginning in chapter 1, Jesus looked at his disciples, his followers, and he says, Listen, guys, I'm not going to be with you very much longer And I am going to send you to continue the ministry I began. But wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Because by yourself, you're only going to be able to make a holy mess. And we are, we are going to, you're going to take this good news of great joy for all people, not just here in Jerusalem, but into the wider region of Judea, to the untouchables in Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. That's where you're going. Because this is good news of great joy for everyone. But there was a a problem that he was going to have to deal with before that would become a reality. And that problem is everybody in the early church at the very beginning was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. Everyone in the upper room that day when the Holy Spirit came and filled them and sent them out into the streets were Jewish. The vast majority of people in the streets that day were Jewish, although I'm sure not all of them. But the early church was comprised of Jewish people who recognized that Jesus was their Messiah that they'd been waiting hundreds of years for, God's anointed Redeemer of the people. And so they imported with them, as they came to Christ, they imported into the early church all of the prejudices of the Jewish people. And there were a lot of prejudices. 
particularly in the ways that Jews viewed people who were not Jewish. And the term in, in throughout the scripture is Gentile. Anybody who's not Jewish is a Gentile. And Jewish Christians began to look at Gentiles the same way that their Jewish brethren looked at Gentiles. And that is to say they held them at arm's length. They, they looked down upon them with contempt. And in fact, it's understandable when you begin to read the Old Testament because God actually spends quite a bit of time trying to set his people apart to get them to think of themselves differently. Because at this point, they've been looking at themselves as just part of mankind. And he's saying, hey, listen, I'm going to set you apart. I am holy. I'm making you holy. I'm setting you apart from the other nations for a reason. So that you can be a kingdom of priests, a holy set-apart nation that exemplifies, that models for everybody else that I am God and that I am worthy to be worshipped. So you're going to be my representatives. But the Jewish people got stuck on, oh, we're set apart, we're special, we're chosen by God and everybody else isn't chosen. So we're more important. And, And in order to help set them apart, God set down lots of different kind of things to help them begin to terraform their heart, to begin to think of themselves differently. He gave them the commandments, the, the, the most famous of which are the Ten Commandments. These are things that protect both their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. First four are about protecting their relationship with God. The latter six are about their relationships with one another. He also gave them the, the kosher laws, the laws that dealt with their dietary... Eat. Like He said, some animals are clean. They're totally fair game for you to eat. Enjoy those hamburgers. Other animals are unclean. And therefore, I want you to avoid eating them. Don't eat pig. Don't eat shellfish. Don't eat, you know, ostriches for whatever reason, right? Don't eat these things because they are unclean. And if you choose to eat them anyway, they will hinder your ability to worship me because I'm God. And I am telling you don't. That's all you need to know. And so those kosher laws became one of the central components of the way that they tried to protect and maintain their spiritual purity so that they could worship God, understandably so. And they served a real purpose early on to help begin changing the mindset of God's people. People who had been enslaved for a really long time and God is saying, no, I'm setting you apart to be a holy priesthood representing me to a people who are very different. But here's the problem. The Jewish people took those purity things too far and they began to take even the kosher laws, for instance. The ideas of some things being clean and other things being unclean and they began to to apply them to people. It's one thing to say this animal is clean and this animal is unclean, but they began to say, we the Jewish people are clean and therefore worthy to be in relationship with God and worthy to be used in the worship of God simply because we were born Jewish. And all those Gentiles who are not Jewish, they are unclean. They are unworthy to be in relationship with God and unworthy to be used in the worship of God. And because of that, they began to make rules. This is, not, this is not Mosaic law. This is not law that God gave them. This is Jewish social custom. They began to say, we won't even interact with Gentiles. 
We don't want to look upon them. And in fact, I, I, I still, still see this to this day. When we were in Jerusalem last year, I'm sitting in the Muslim quarter, which is part of, of Jerusalem, and I watched as a young man was leading his rabbi through the Muslim quarter, and the, Mus- the, 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 the rabbi with his hands, or the older man at least, I don't know if he was a rabbi, but he certainly looked like one, with his hands on the young man's shoulder, had his eyes closed so he would not even need to look upon the great unwashed. This mindset is so stinking ingrained in the Jewish people. We are other, and we don't want to be sullied by our interaction with the unclean, with the non-Jew. And God had to undo that, had to work against it. And so last week we began a story of where God is beginning to peel away the calluses of prejudice from the heart of one of his early church leaders, a guy named Peter. And let's go ahead and I'm going to briefly remind you of the story so far, and then we'll dive in in chapter 10. So Peter is down in a little town called Joppa, and about 35 miles north, there's a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is not only a Gentile, but he is also a Roman centurion, which means that he is an officer or, or, you know, a, a leader in the army that is, is oppressing Jewish people throughout the region. Suffice it to say, Roman centurions were not loved, not greatly respected by Jews. And yet, God looks at Cornelius' heart, recognizes a man who fears him and is ripe for inviting him into the kingdom of God. And so he says, Cornelius, I want you to send to Joppa, 35 miles south, to find a guy named Peter, one of my followers. Invite him to come up because he has something I want to share with you. So Cornelius complies. He sends three guys to come down and invite Peter to come north. And as they're doing that, Peter is upstairs praying and he has a vision of a sheet being lowered down from heaven. And inside that sheet, and this is just a vision, this isn't, you know, it's not a physical thing, but he sees a sheet full of animals. Some of them are clean. Some of them are unclean. But the fact that they're all mixed together makes all those animals unclean. And then God says to Peter, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And when we understand how, you know, how seriously the Jewish people took their identity as set-apart people, we can understand why Peter would respond, certainly not, Lord. I've never eaten anything that was impure and unclean. Because if he were to comply with that, It would make him ceremonially unclean. But then God responds, Peter, don't call anything that I have made clean, unclean. And and on the surface, it seems like we're talking about food, but he's really talking about people. This is a metaphor for an entire group of people, the Gentiles, who at this point were probably the vast majority of the people living on the planet. Don't write them off as unclean. Don't write them off as irredeemable. Simply because they're different from you. Because I have the ability to redeem them and restore them. And this good news isn't just for you. The Messiah, Jesus, is not just your Redeemer. He's theirs as well. And so this group of, of this delegation from Cornelius shows up, invites Peter to come. Peter complies. He heads back up to Caesarea where Cornelius is at. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 27. While Peter was talking with Cornelius, 
he went inside and found a large gathering of people because Cornelius has not just sent for Peter so he can talk to him. He's got a whole sphere of influence. The Greek word there is oikos. It's basically his his group of people, his family, the servants in his household, some of the, the soldiers that are under his employment, all of them are stuffed into his little house. And, and Peter sees all these people. In verse 28, he said to them, hey, you guys are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Again, that's not Mosaic law. That's Jewish social custom that had been derived from the kosher laws. It was a misappropriation. Of, of God's, of the reason why it was given. But you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Nobody is unusable by God. So, when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. So may I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius answered, well, three days ago, I was in my house praying about this hour at three in the afternoon, which is one of the the times of Jewish prayer. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. So send to Joppa for Simon, who's also called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it's good for you to come. Now, we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. In other words, what have you got? And then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him And does what is right. Now I want you to just consider the gravity of that statement. Spoken by a man who has been taught all his life. That God accepts Jews. And everyone else is unclean. This is monumental. This is, this is like seismic shifting in his mind. Obviously the, the vision that Peter has had has begun to work because he's recognizing you guys are not beyond God's love because what is, what is the rationale he uses for that? He, here's a guy, Cornelius, a Roman centurion that God has sent a vision of an angel to. If God's doing that and is telling him to send for Peter, okay, obviously nobody is beyond the reach of God. And he says, I love there in, in verse 34 or 35, he's, he accepts from every nation the one who fears him. Now, again, fear is not a, a, like a, a terror the way that we might feel if a grizzly bear walked into this place, right? That like, oh my goodness. It's more of a reverential respect for the fact that he is God and we are not. When we begin to understand that God is God and we are not, that is the reverential fear that is the beginning of wisdom, It's the kind of fear that we have when we're driving and there is a train coming down the tracks. The train is far bigger and more powerful than us. So we then begin to order our lives around it. We let it go first, right? As opposed to forcing it or demanding that it go around us. My dad always told me a story. This is definitely not in my notes. My dad told me a story of a time when he was up in San Francisco and and, uh, one of those trolley cars was stuck behind a woman who had pulled up to the hotel she was going into and she was going through getting her luggage out of the thing and the trolley's dinging its bell like, hello, move. And finally the woman gets so tired of hearing this bell, she goes, just go around. 
it's a trolley. It's kind of, st- whatever, you get it. So, but, but there's often this mindset that we have of, God, you should just order creation around me. But the, the fear of God is the recognition. He's God and I'm not, so therefore I will order my life around him as opposed to demanding he order creation around me. Is it making sense? So, Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him, has a reverential respect, and does what is right, who ultimately orders his life or her life around God as opposed to the other way around. Then he begins to share the gospel message. And every time the gospel is shared, it's always slightly different based upon who they're talking to. We're going to see that as we continue to work through Acts, that every time the gospel is presented, it is presented in a way that that group of people can receive it. But there's always similar or the the same kind of things of talking about Jesus. Jesus is the center of the gospel. And he says this, you know, the message that God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. You've heard about this because everybody's been talking about it. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John the Baptist preached about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Well, I want you to know that we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. He's pointing to himself and these Jewish Christians. There's about six of them that have joined him in the journey from Joppa to to Cornelius' home. He's saying we are eyewitnesses of everything he did. And we can tell you that they, the Jewish people and the Roman government, killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He wasn't seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of both the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter's on a roll. He's sharing the gospel message. And then something radically unexpected happens. I want you to notice that Peter's not done sharing. I'm sure he would go on a lot longer than this. But as he's speaking, while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message, on this house full of of Gentile people, on a Roman centurion, upon his family, upon the servants, upon the soldiers that are in attendance. And the circumcised believers, which is just a shorthand for the Jewish-born Christians that have come with Peter from, from Joppa, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. And how did they know that the Holy Spirit was given? For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. I want to pause there for a moment. Because something seems out of order to me as I'm reading this. First off, God straight up interrupts Peter as he's sharing the gospel. Secondly, nowhere do we read that these, belie- these, these Gentile people in this household make a verbal confession of faith, right? They don't pray a prayer. 
What gives? Well, to me, it's a reminder of the fact that nowhere in Scripture are we ever commanded to pray a prayer as if that is a hoop we have to jump through. Instead, what we're told is that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, and I'm pointing to my heart as opposed to my mind, because it's one thing to intellectually believe. I believe there's a God and maybe Jesus is there. But to believe in him with our whole being means that we ultimately choose to follow him. Choose to order our life around him as opposed to kind of expecting he's just going to come in and fix all that ails me so I can have my best life now. God knows the heart of people. And so there's not an expectation that they pray a prayer. The second thing that seems surprising, as you read Acts, every single time that the Holy Spirit is given, it's always given by the laying on of hands of somebody. Somebody who is a believer who already has the Holy Spirit lays their hands upon other people and the Holy Spirit is imparted to them. And that is not the case here. Instead, God just douses them with the Holy Spirit. The Jewish believers that are there, Peter and the guys from Joppa, have no part whatsoever. And that's important because in their minds, it's one thing to share the gospel, but the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit is reserved for those who are clean. Those who are usable and Gentiles are unclean. And God is declaring to Peter and these Jewish Christians, no, 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 no. My Holy Spirit is for everyone, not just for Jews. And so they don't participate because God is pretty much speaking as loudly to Peter and the Jewish Christians as he is to Cornelius and the Gentile Christians in that place, declaring to them, I have accepted them. And I want us to notice that this is very reminiscent of something that happened way back in Acts chapter 2. That's where we had the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit fell on the first, you know, Jewish Christians who were filled with the Holy Spirit. What happened when they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Not helpful. <laughs> what happened? They began to, they, they began to speak in tongues, meaning they began to speak in languages they had never learned and they began to praise God in languages they didn't even know. The same thing happens here. When the Holy Spirit falls, we're told in, where is that, verse 46, the Jewish believers um, knew that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Exactly what had happened on the day of Pentecost. In fact, a lot of theologians and historians refer to this as the Gentile Pentecost. And what God is saying is, in the same way you've experienced me, they are also given the same opportunity. He is declaring, I think, more forcefully to Peter and the Jewish Christians than he is to Cornelius and the Gentile Christians. I've accepted them. You should too. And notice what is not expected of them. First, they haven't prayed a prayer. Secondly, hands have not been laid upon them. Third, they haven't had to be circumcised. They haven't had to begin to observe kosher laws. They haven't had to be catechized into Jewish belief or all those kind of things. They haven't become Jewish at all. They have simply placed their faith in Jesus Christ and they have been welcomed into the family of God. The giving of the Holy Spirit is God's stamp of ownership and his, his way that he adopts us into his family. And he is saying they 
are now fully part of your, the family. They are your brothers and your sisters. Then Peter said, verse 47, Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. I mean, God just baptized them with the Holy Spirit, just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked Peter to stay with him for a few days. What this reveals to us is that the heart work that God had begun to do with Peter when he was praying and he saw that vision, that heart work has begun to bear fruit because Peter is willing to baptize them with water because he's already seen the God baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Only God can bring the Holy Spirit. We can't force it. He said, if God accepts them, I do as well. And then he is willing to break Jewish custom and he stays with Cornelius as his guest, breaks bread with them and spends several more days with them. In other words, I'm not just accepting them and baptizing them, but I'm also going to begin to do life with them. It's a big deal. His prejudices really have begun to be overcome. Of course, not all of the Jewish believers are are bought into this. In fact, when word gets back to Jerusalem of what's transpired in Caesarea with this Roman centurion and his whole sphere of influence, there are people in the church who are upset about it. Let's keep reading in in chapter 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? You, a Jewish man, had the audacity to step foot into an unclean, uncircumcised Roman centurion's home, and not only that, but actually ate a meal with him. Don't you realize, Peter, that makes you ceremonially unclean. This isn't what we do. This is scandalous to the church. Are you trying to hurt the ministry of the church? What I appreciate about Peter is that when he is criticized by who, what I believe to be well-meaning Jewish Christians who are truly trying to protect the sanctity of the movement of God, trying to protect it from disregarding what they consider to be absolutely rock-solid tradition. And we know, for if you've ever listened to Fiddler on the Roof, tradition's kind of a big deal to Jewish people, right? So... They're trying to protect the church from scandal. And what I appreciate about Peter is he does not write them off simply because they still hold on to prejudices that he, up until just a few days before, also held on to. Prejudices that were deeply ingrained in their heart. He doesn't write them off. He doesn't just say, hey, you know what? Forget you guys. I'm going to go back to the Gentiles because they, they get it. God accepts them. I accept them. You don't accept them. Then you have no part with us. He doesn't write them off. He doesn't look down upon them. Instead, he does everything he can to help them to come to the same realization that God has led him to. And he does this in two ways. The first way he does it is he tells them a play-by-play. And this is why Luke does the first repetition of this. Literally what we read in chapter 10 
he repeats in chapter 11. He gives a brief overview of it. We're not going to read all of it, but just starting in verse 4. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story, and he goes into it. And you're like, you just said this in chapter 10, Luke. Why are you repeating it in chapter 11? Because it's important. And Peter is trying to explain to his fellow Jewish Christians what he has experienced because it was surprising to him too. That was the first thing. The second thing he does to help them get what he's already discovered is he brings those other Jewish believers from Joppa that had gone with him to see Cornelius. He brings them to Jerusalem with him so they can corroborate what he's seen. So it's not just his word against the whole Jewish Christian church's word. So let's look at verse 11. This is right in the middle of Peter sharing the story. He says, right then, when I was praying, three men who had been sent from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. And the spirit told me to have no hesitation with going with them. And these six brothers, so he's pointing to the guys right next to him. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house and he continues to tell the story. So he has brought eyewitnesses who can back up what he's sharing. So it's not just his word. And then finally, this is kind of how he ends his sharing with them. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them just as he had come on us at the beginning on the day of Pentecost. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave to us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way, right? Like God has clearly said, I accept them because he is the only one who can baptize with the Holy Spirit and he clearly did it. So who was I to say that they couldn't be baptized with water as a public declaration of their internal decision to follow Jesus? Right? And thankfully, thank you. That's so nice to have a response. I think that might be Jesus calling. No, no, okay. When they heard this, there was no further objections and they praised God saying, so then even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So at least momentarily, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem embraced their Gentile brethren as family momentarily. And there's a, there's a peace that happens and a kind of a a sense of excitement, but it's very short lived. And as we're going to find, as we continue through Acts There will be a strong vocal contingent within the Jewish Christian church that will have a very difficult time with what God is saying. And they are going to push back hard on it. But that's a conversation for another day. This morning, what I, as we have read this story of first God stripping away the calluses on Peter's heart so that he begins to, you know, stripping away the prejudices that Peter is held and then begins to do it with these other six Jewish Christians from Joppa and then finally begins to do it in the church there in Jerusalem. God is working overtime to to strip away the prejudices. And I'm left going, so what, what does that say to us? What can we learn from them? And I just have to recognize that we too harbor prejudices, every single one of us. And before you write me off or stop listening because prejudice is a bad word and there's been so much conversation um, about prejudice that we've just, we just don't want to listen, just understand what I mean by prejudice. Prejudice means to prejudge someone. And we all do it. We all prejudge people based upon a lot of things. Like, for instance, I, I, don't, I truly 
don't believe that we are born with prejudices. We don't carry prejudices into this world out of our mother's womb. Prejudices are things that we collect throughout our life. For instance, I had no issues bringing my son Ethan to the dentist the first time. The first time. But he had a bad experience, right? Ooh, that doesn't feel good. That hurts. And so now, good luck getting my boy to go quietly to the dentist. Even though we've gone to, we now go to a different dentist and he is far more gentle and far more patient and far more willing to explain my son's first experience with the dentist colors every other dentist he interacts with. And this happens in a lot of different ways. And if you don't believe that we have prejudice, let's just, I'm just going to throw some pictures up on the screen for a moment. And I don't want you to, to necessarily say out loud what comes to mind, but I just want you to be aware of the thoughts and ideas that come to your mind when you see pictures. So let's go ahead and start. Okay? What are, just, just pay attention to the thoughts, ideas, or feelings that spring to mind as, as these pictures come up. All right, let's go to the next one. I'm thinking, why on earth would you have white wine when there's perfectly good red wine, right? All right, next one. What thoughts come to mind? How do you begin to fill in the blanks of you don't know any of this person's story? You don't know anything about this person. But what do you begin to believe about this person even though you've never heard him speak or know anything about his story? Next one. Glorious haircut. On both of them. Right? I know jealousy is the first thing that's coming to most of you. I too wish I had that kind of Photo session. All right, next one. What thoughts? I mean, what do, what do you think is going on here? This this is one. This is one that is interesting. So I'll just take a moment. Um, this is a picture of a, a huge group of Arab men who are protesting against ISIS and against terrorism. One, one of their signs says, say no to terrorism. And then ISIS basically, we are, sta- we are, the world Muslims are united against hate, against ISIS. Stop terrorizing innocent civilians. Was that what came to mind initially? Or did your mind fill it in with different thoughts? Because you get it. All right, last one. Comes to mind. What are your initial thoughts about this person? This is another interesting one because um, the guy in the forefront with the the nice facial tattoo, he probably goes to the same place that Mike Tyson goes. Um, He's actually a pastor up in Long Beach. And yes, he has had a very, uh, you know, troubled past, but God is using him powerfully in, in a city pretty locally. Uh, to walk with other gangbangers and things out of drugs and out of prisons and out of their gangs in order to begin to love Jesus. So, again, we all have prejudices. These are things that we naturally fill in the blanks 
And we don't bring these prejudices with us into the world when we prejudge something. We are, they are developed over the course of our lifetime. And they come from a lot of different places. I mean, probably the first place that we begin to accumulate our prejudices is simply from pain. We learn our prejudices from pain, right? So on 9-11, we have some planes that fly in the World Trade Center towers, and, and we watch as these symbols of American commerce and power crumble to the earth. And then we begin to learn that it was driven by terrorists from the Middle East who want to destroy our way of life and basically strike a blow to the great evil that is America. And all of a sudden we begin to look at people who are Arab differently than us, people who wear head coverings, people who pray facing Mecca. We begin to treat them differently. So we learn it through pain. My wife, I just learned that my wife has a prejudice towards Doberman Pinschers last week. We go to the park with Sadie all the time and she loves all the dogs there. And all of a sudden this this new Doberman Pinscher puppy starts running through the thing. My wife's like, we got to go. I'm like, why? She's like, it's a Doby. It's a Doberman Pinscher. I'm like, yeah, isn't he cute? She's like, no, 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 they're dangerous. I go, what do you mean? She's like, I was bitten by a Doberman Pinscher when I was a kid. I'm not comfortable around him. We have our perception shaped oftentimes by pain we've experienced and it colors our interaction with people or things that remind us of it. Secondly, we are often taught our prejudices. This is certainly true for Peter and the other Jewish Christians is they were taught as a Jew, you are clean. Uh, People who are not Jewish are unclean and they are untouchable and you must not interact with them. That's the heart of God. And sometimes we have picked up beliefs about entire people groups because people that we trusted, people that we did life with, have inserted them into our minds. We begin to look at certain people as unsafe, lazy, you know, just naturally angry and selfish or whatever it is. And you can begin to think of some of the, you just think of a people group and what words come to mind and then begin to track back. Where did you get that idea? And in what ways have maybe, and maybe sometimes our preconceived ideas about them are confirmed by some of our interactions with a, a, a one or two people from that group. And now all of a sudden we start painting all of them with the same brush. We prejudge them when we interact with them. And those prejudices can hinder us. And then the last one is we, we simply lack perspective. There is a natural human tendency to, to fear that which we don't understand. I was raised in a family of all boys. My mom was more masculine than most, you know, she could beat me in arm wrestling until I was a junior in high school. Not something I'm proud of. I feared the opposite sex because I simply didn't understand them. I've been now married for 15 years. I still don't understand them. <laughs> right? But what we don't understand, we hold at arm's length because it's dangerous, it's scary. This, these are just, and this is broad brushstrokes, but these are a few of the ways that we carry prejudice into our hearts. But here's the danger of prejudice. When we prejudge, it causes us to hold at arm's length the very people that God is inviting us into relationship with. It causes us to move away from the ones he would ask us to move towards. It hinders us from having relationship with them. 
It had the potential of hindering Peter from saying, yes, I will go down to Cornelius' home. I will share the gospel with him. It's certainly going to start hindering the church. It is going to be a major impediment to the early church to be able to embrace this move that God is doing. And we have in our minds things and ideas about entire people groups that are different from us, that hinder us from relationship. And this morning, as we kind of come out of this, I simply want us to take a few moments to invite the Holy Spirit to begin to sift through our own hearts and to begin to expose some of the calluses of prejudice that we have begun to harbor towards people who think differently from us, who look differently from us, who who sound different from us, who have different values, who vote differently from us, and just begin to let God sift our hearts. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, but, but... before they actually lead us in worship, I simply want us to sit. And, I, and maybe this will be helpful. Maybe, if you would like, put your hands like this, as if you're holding a bowl. And as the Holy Spirit, during this time, begins to sift your heart, He can just begin to fill your palms with some of the, the seeds of prejudice that have been planted in your heart. Or some of the, to uproot and put some of the saplings of distrust and hatred and, and condescension that he has, that, that have been allowed to grow in your heart. And I'm just going to pray, Holy Spirit, right now we, we want to come before you and let you search us and know us. Know our innermost thoughts. You know our hearts better than we know them ourselves. You know the ways that um, life has left our hearts callous towards certain people in certain lifestyles, in certain walks of life and from certain places. And Father God, while only Jesus um, can save them, we want to be the kind of vessels who you fill with your love and that it can pour out into our world. And before you can use us there, we need to deal with our calluses. We need to deal with our prejudices. So search us and know us. And I pray that you.